Good morning. Right now, we're walking through a, a series um, where we're looking at what authentic faith looks like. And um, if you were here the last two weeks, you, you kind of, it's starting to build on each other. Each one of these is a, is a building block. If you missed those, you could find it on morrisonhill.com and go back. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time. We got a lot of ground to cover today, so I'm not going to review all of it. But here's, here's the bottom line. Authentic means two things. Number one, it's real. It's genuine. Number two, you actually act on it. Those are the two things that make authentic faith in anything. If you have authentic faith in the pew that you're sitting in right now, we know this for two reasons. One, there's actually a pew there. We all can see this. Number two, you're sitting in it. Does that make sense? And we spent the first two weeks more dealing with the idea of you actually have to act on your faith. We'll come back to that. That's inescapable. It's the way Jesus presented faith every single time he talked about it. You act on it. If you believe in him, you act on it. This morning is more the other side, and I just want to give you a heads up as we do this. Authentic faith means we're always measuring anything we believe about anything against what the scriptures actually say. And there is some room for us to understand a few things differently or to interpret a few things differently. But at the end of the day, if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to measure what we believe against what the Scriptures actually tell us. And that's where we're going today. Jesus said, wise people build their lives on his teachings like someone building a house on the rock. Choice after choice, step after step. And that's what we're trying to do together. This morning, I, I want to just one more thing, point this out. You've got a little handout in here. And I know that not everybody likes taking notes, but for all of you who do, it's always there. And this, we're, we're going to start out with this one big point. And this is this. Baptism is where we're talk, what we're talking about today. And baptism is God's idea. There are a lot of traditions that we have, a lot of things like pews that I just mentioned, that you would, you, you, we take for granted because just about any church that you'll ever go to will have something that looks like that. Lots of churches have people sitting in rows. Lots of churches have a baptistry behind a stage. Now, it used to be no churches hardly had drums. Almost all of them you'll see drums. You follow me? But there's traditions change. A lot of those is this. Baptism is not one of those. Baptism is not something that people came up with or tweaked. For example, communion here. Jesus came up with communion. We came up with trays and little pieces of bread like, like what he talked about. But communion itself, we always have to measure what happens in here. I don't know about you, but I really communed with God during that time. I hope it worked for you. But that's what has to happen. We've got to be remembering what Jesus did for us. We've got to remember that we are now his body. His blood now flows through us. We measure what, however we celebrate communion against the standard of actual Scripture. Just real quick, give me some sort of signal. Is this making sense? Because this is the foundational idea. Okay, good. Here we go. Jesus um, gave us the Great Commission. This is the the ultimate battle plan for any church anywhere. This is what he wants. We're going to read it again together this morning. Please, please read this with me straight out of Matthew 28. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, 
I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Rick Warren is a very well-known pastor and author. You might have read some of his books. His church recently celebrated an incredible milestone. They just baptized their 50,000th person at Saddleback. That's incredible. And people um, asked him about it, and he took the opportunity to say very profound, very simple truth that this is where we're starting today. He, he, they asked him, why is baptism such a big deal? And he said, why is baptism such a big deal? There are two reasons. First, Jesus commanded it. Second, he modeled it. And again, this is where I'd like this conversation to start. This is where I believe any conversation about anything that we do to follow Jesus has to start. Is did Jesus say it? And I hope that if at the end of the day, you're going to be thankful for where we went today. I believe it's a wonderful thing to study deep, to dig deep into what God's Word actually says about something. I think it's fun. I think it's beautiful. It makes it more meaningful. It makes it so powerful when we really get just how big God's idea was about something. But at the end of the day, it should be this simple. If Jesus said, do it, do it, right? That's it. That should be the end of the story. And, and I, I agree with that. And not, not, Jesus didn't just command this. He actually modeled it. Matthew chapter uh, 3 is where we're going to read today. This is actually one of the few events that all four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, chose to include in their accounts. There's quite a bit of overlap between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Not that much between uh, John and the rest of them. This is one that all four of them thought, this has to be in the definitive story. I think there's a reason for that. Matthew writes this, Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, but John tried to talk him out of it. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, it should be done. For we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. I'm going to pause in the story for a second and ask you to read with me again. This is another passage we've been reading together each time. We're going to keep doing this often at least, maybe not every week. But this is a verse from Proverbs. As we read this together this time, I want you to notice, not just are they action verbs, but notice how amazingly, beautifully John the Baptist actually modeled this for us in this story. Read with me. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all that you do, and he will show you which path to take. Back to the story. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. Now, as you'll see in just a couple minutes, probably most of you already know this, but just in case, in a few minutes, what the Scriptures teach about baptism is we, we are baptized for the forgiveness of sins and so that we can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That was God's original design, and, and I'll show you where it says that in a moment. But let's think about Jesus modeling this for us for a second, because this is an interesting idea. Jesus never sinned, right? So he had no sins to be forgiven. And I know that he had to be limited 
to, to live life as a human, to be tempted in every way just as we are, he had to have some sort of a limit. He couldn't have been connected to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit as deeply as he is now, as he was before he was living as a human, and yet he had to be connected there. There had to be some connection between God the Father and God the Holy Spirit before the moment of his baptism. There's somehow, some way, we have, we, th- those things make sense. And yet, notice what happens here. Not only does Jesus say, no, John, this is important. We've got to do this. God requires this. Not only that, this is the moment that God the Father chooses to publicly endorse him as his son. And this is the moment that God the Father chooses to visibly, tangibly send the Holy Spirit on Jesus in power. That's not an accident. That's part of God's design. This design goes all the way throughout the scriptures. I actually spent a lot of time this week, mostly because I accidentally deleted my original file and lost the whole thing and had to start over. But this is... um, This will walk you through everything I say this morning and much more if you just want to know what the Bible says about baptism. You can also keep following along in this thing, and I hope you're listening as well. But here's, here's something you need to know. This imagery of water, this imagery of walking through water somehow, being submerged in water somehow, as, as an act of trust and obedience, and a moment of complete life change. This happened all the way throughout the scripture. It was part of God's design. Noah's flood was one of the first ones that the New Testament actually specifically mentions. Noah and his family were saved through the ark. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes this. Man, I wish I could unpack this whole verse for you, but this could be a whole nother thing. This is just huge. But while Jesus was in the grave, while Jesus was dead, if you will, he preached to the spirits that had died before. Peter's referencing this, and, and then, he, then listen what else he says about the imagery of the flood and what that means. Here we go. Christ preached to the spirits in prison, those who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood, and that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I've written several of these. I wish I could tell you all these stories. I wish I could walk you through them. But these are just a hint of them. There's way more in this thing. But all the way through the Old Testament, you say this imagery, especially in the life of Israel. When God delivered them from Egypt, they had to pass through the Red Sea. If you look at a map, there were other ways out of Egypt. This is the way God chose We sang about it this morning. You split the sea so I could walk right through it. It's a huge, powerful moment in their history. And on one side, they were slaves. They passed through the water. On the other side, they're free. Not long after that, they, well, actually, it was quite a while after that, but as far as the whole scope of the Bible, not long after that. But a while later, they finally made it to the promised land. On one side, they're wandering in the wilderness. They pass through the waters of the Jordan River. God does the same miracle again. They go on to, on one side, they're wanderers. On the other, they are home. They're now taking the promised land that God had promised and finally delivered. 
This imagery just goes all the way through. We see Naaman, the leper, be healed by dipping in water. We see Jonah repenting and being restored in the ocean and being brought back out again. It just it happens over and over and over again because God was trying to tell us something. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.2 about this, and he, he listen to the word he chooses to use about how, well, just listen, in the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. They're not walking through. I don't want you to picture the Red Sea and they're all doing like this into the walls of water on the side. That's not what's going on. It's not exactly baptism here, but the imagery He's pointing out this is the same God, this is the same big plan, it's the same kind of thing that he's thinking through, the same kind of memorable moment based on trust and obedience and just do what I say and watch what happens. Also, in the tabernacle, um, this, you have the most holy place or the holy of holies, you have the holy place, all of that symbolized the very presence of God. And all day long, they were, the priests would, would make these sacrifices. And I don't know, that, that sounds so holy and pure. Here's what making sacrifices means. You're killing, slaughtering, bleeding, and butchering animals all day long, burning their flesh, cutting it up. They had special bones that went here, special bones that went there, special organs that got separated out, certain things that got burnt, certain things that got thrown away. These priests are covered in filth. It's disgusting. I don't know if you've ever tried to butcher something. John Machino had me and some of my boys come one night. We'll never forget it. It was actually pretty cool. It's really good meat. It was awesome. But it was messy. It was nasty. But in the middle of this, uh, what they had to keep coming back into the holy place to maintain there was some bread in there, some candles and incense. They had to keep, they had to keep burning. Every time they approached the holy place, they had to walk by this basin. It's also called a laver. It's called a lot of different things. But basically, it's a huge bowl of water. And here's what they had to do. They're covered in blood and hair and guts and all this nastiness. They had to immerse their hands in the water, bring it back out, and they are clean. This went in all day long. And I don't know about you, but just speaking from a logical point of view, Maybe the first or second time this happened in the day, they might have ended up a little bit more physically clean. But as the day went on, this water would actually probably be making them dirtier, smellier. Are you with me on this? Do you understand what I'm saying? It's getting worse as the day goes on. It's harder to trust that this actually means something every single time they do it all day long. But as they approach the holy place, they have to immerse their hands and your hands go in you come back out God says you're clean come on in mess with the bread make sure the candles are lit trust and obedience water something being dipped Paul appealed to the the absolute universal acceptance of this image in the early church in Romans 6 and this is actually the heart of what we're talking about today because I need you to understand something One of the things that's a tradition that's almost completely accepted across Christianity these days is the idea of presenting people with a moment of salvation. And and the way that we have this idea set up 
in our modern world is, is that we, we offer these really great moments where people can, some churches don't even baptize, but we, we want them to get baptized or we want them to pray a prayer, somehow raise their hand, sign a paper, do something. And, and then we say, now your ticket to heaven is punched. And that was God's plan. Thank God you showed up today because now you're good. This is never in Scripture. It's not, about, it's not how baptism is presented. It's not, there is no sinner's prayer in Scripture. There is no writing out cards. There is no other plan other than the one I'm describing to you today. But the plan was never just get them baptized. Somehow bring them in. Get them to pray something. Get them to get, them to get that ticket punch. That's all that matters. That was never the plan. And yet, we never see, you're going to see this again in a second, you never see anyone become a Christian after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. You never see anyone choose to follow him. And baptism was not a given. And Paul appeals to that as he makes the real point that is the real heart of what we're talking about today, that baptism, or coming to Christ, becoming a disciple of Christ in the first place, is really about the rest of your life. Listen to the imagery that he uses because it also talks about baptism. This is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. Here we go. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know that we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. And when he died, he died once and for all to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. And so you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to its sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin no longer is your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. There's two major misunderstandings that get people hung up and literally fighting and splitting churches when they talk about baptism. It's a little bit scary to me, honestly, to be talking about you this morning because I know that we all come from different backgrounds, different traditions. I want to say one more time, this is just, here's what I'm trying to say. I want you to see what the Bible actually says about it. 
And there are two big misunderstandings that are actually at the heart of all the controversy. It's not what the Scripture says. The Scriptures, as I'm trying to show you this morning, pretty consistent. There's two big misunderstandings that we have. The first one I already told you about. And that's that somewhere along the line, not from the Bible, but somewhere along the line, we got this idea that God's big plan is just get people saved. As in, somehow get them to make some sort of a commitment, baptism or otherwise, anything it takes so that when they die, they get to go to heaven. That's my plan. That's the whole thing. It's never how it's presented in Scripture. Jesus said, wise people build their lives on the rock of his teaching. He said, when Peter first made the great confession, he said, on this rock, I will build my church. Is he talking about heaven or is he talking about here? He's talking about here. His plan was, yeah, there's a moment, but the moment is about everything that happens next. So that's one. The other thing is, a lot of people have somehow along the line misunderstood baptism as what we call in Christianese a work. A work is something that you do to earn salvation. As in, if I could just do this many push-ups, or I could just never, ever, ever drink this, or whatever else, then God has to save me. If I can just keep this law, if I can just keep this rule, never break this rule, God has to save me. And a lot of people see baptism as one of those. Oh, you have to get baptized. You, you just, man, and if you do, boom, God saves you. You get to go to heaven. That's a misunderstanding of how it's presented in Scripture, and that's where a lot of, the, of the, uh, the confusion and controversy comes from. So if you're following this, let's quick review. I want to make sure you catch down, because I'm going to have to just trust you guys to read some of these so we can get through everything today. Baptism is God's idea. Jesus commanded and modeled baptism. God uses water as a symbol of trust, obedience, and a new start, and he does that all the way through Scripture Here's a bunch of them. You should actually read them in your own Bible when you can. Baptism is not a work. And there's several, several little scriptures here. You can put notes here. I, I, I'm, I'm an artist, so I actually drew a little cross versus a Ten Commandments there to remind me what that means. You can do whatever you want. You cannot write anything. You, some of you have already made a paper airplane or never even picked one of these up. But I'm telling you, these scriptures, if you've got it, these scriptures are some of the ones that really trip people up because some of these scriptures, they say things like, we are saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. That's scripture. That's straight out of the Bible. That's right there. The problem is those passages, every single one of them, I listed them all for you. Every single one of them is, are not talking about how to become a Christian. They're talking about Gentiles, non-Jews, are not required to follow the Jewish laws anymore. Every single one of those passages is talking about that. They're not saying, here's how to become a Christian the first day you come to Jesus. They're saying, stop requiring people to get circumcised and not eat this and not drink this. That's not it. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ, not by works so that no one can boast. And nobody in the early church ever thought about baptism in the context of a work or a rule or a law the way sometimes we do. And this is where a lot of the controversy comes from is that one simple misunderstanding. 
So we're going to keep going. Let's see what the early church actually did do. The early church consistently taught and practiced baptism. Every single time that you see someone become a Christian, this happened. When the, when the Philip, the evangelist, went around, he baptized whole cities. Uh, there's a cool story you probably heard where he's on a chariot with an Ethiopian eunuch, and the eunuch hears the gospel first time, and he goes, look, here's water. So why can't I be baptized right now? And he goes, let's do it. And they baptize him right now. That's, that's how it is all the way through. You see, Paul was baptized. Cornelius uh, and his whole family were baptized the moment they worked some really powerful stuff out with Peter. If it wasn't for that moment in time, by the way, none of us who are not Jews would ever have a chance. That was a huge pivotal moment in history. The Roman jailer, who was, by the way, the one that Paul said, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. He said that to him. Later on that night, that man and all of his family were baptized into Christ. There was really, there are no exceptions. This is how they did it. The one exception that some people point to and get hung up on sometimes was the thief on the cross. But again, this is a misunderstanding. This is not something that I'm, I, I, I just want to help. I, I, again, I'm trying to help you see what the Bible says. I'm not trying to argue against anybody. I'm not trying to, to change Anything except can we all just look and see what the Bible actually says. But this guy was a completely unique situation. We are baptized. We just read this in Romans 6. We are baptized into Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Is that right? We died with him. We're buried with him. We're raised to a new life with him. This happened before Jesus died. He hasn't died yet let alone been buried, let alone raised to life, let alone preached to the people that died in the flood, which symbolized baptism, let alone gave the great commission that says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and, don't miss it, teaching them to obey all the things that I've commanded. The vision is always the whole picture, not just get saved in a moment. But he hadn't done any of those things yet. He's hanging on the cross. What this shows, this story is such a beautiful story, but it's not a plan of how to become a Christian. Nobody in the early church ever looked to that story and said, oh, this is how I need to come to Christ. This is day one. This is, this is what I should put in a tract. That, 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 here, here's what he's saying. This was a completely unique situation. You know what this shows us? If we do misunderstand, if somehow... Somebody repents, and then they die right as they're getting into the baptistry. It, for whatever reason, you come up with any scenario you can ever think about, about what if I don't get baptized, but I meant to? What if I didn't understand till the last minute? What if I was taught wrong, but I really followed God, and I tried my best, I just couldn't read, and nobody ever... This story tells me that God is big enough and loving enough merciful enough, smart enough, powerful enough, he can handle any of those weird things that could happen. Okay? He can handle that. We don't need to justify it. We don't need to change our theology. We don't need to change what we do to teach somebody how to come to Christ to match any imaginary scenario that might be out there. We just have to see what he actually said. But this is an awesome story. And who are we saved through? It's not by baptism. Who saves us? Our faith in? That was very, very wimpy. I need to hear this better than that. Our faith in Jesus. 
Jesus Christ is what saves us. And that's the only thing this guy had. Even before Jesus had died for his sins, this guy had that faith. And Jesus had the authority as the high priest making the sacrifice, as the lamb being sacrificed, as the son of God, the long-promised Messiah, the one who is the center of everything we believe. He had the authority in that moment, no matter how weird that was. It's in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's, he's not under the Old Covenant. He's not, the New Covenant hadn't even started yet. But in that moment, Jesus is still Lord, and he goes, today you'll be with me in paradise. Because Jesus can do that. None of the rest of us can change the rules. Just Jesus. But if you've got any questions, well, what about this person that I knew? Or what about this? Or what if, what if I died? What if I crashed my plane in a desert and I was the only one and I'd never seen the Bible and I start reading it and blah, blah, blah. I point you to that story. God can figure out the details. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. But let's go back in these last few minutes and let's look again at the pattern that he actually gave us. The first day there was ever church, first sermon that ever got preached after Jesus died, was buried, rose, ascended, gave the Great Commission was in Acts chapter 2. And at the end of that sermon was the first altar call, which we're about to do one in here in a few minutes. We still do this. The first invitation to come and follow Jesus. And the people asked. They were so fired up about what Peter and the other apostles had said that they actually asked, what do we do? What do we do? And, and, and depending on which version that you're, you're reading, sometimes it actually says, what must we do to be saved? But I, I need you to understand something. They're not talking about saved the way that we have evolved that into modern American culture. They're not talking about what is this one moment that we could possibly have and then we know that our ticket is punched and someday when we die, we go to heaven. That's not the question they're asking. They're saying we killed the Messiah. What do we do? What could we possibly do to respond to that? They're lost. Same place all of us are without Jesus. And this is Peter's reply. Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins. That means turn away from them, walk the other way. Turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. And then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. I just want to pause there for a second and let you know, we're actually really, truly wrapping up. But if I were to say, in conclusion, and keep going for another half hour, I've got biblical precedents. So if that ever happens, you know, give me some grace. But it's not going to happen today. We're actually wrapping up. Here we go. Those who believed what Peter said, read carefully. I might accidentally get this wrong. Those who believed what Peter said raised their hand and filled out a card. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day. About 3,000 in all. God always requires an action. 
And again, I'm not talking about any exceptions you've got or any questions you've got or any person you love that might not have been baptized, but you're sure hoping they're in heaven. That's them and God, and that's bigger than anything that I could ever go into. All I'm trying to do is, is ask us, as we try to make sure our faith is authentic, that we actually see what the scriptures very clearly teach and that we measure all of our other questions and ideas against that. And this is the plan that we see over and over. These people were baptized because they, here's what they knew from the rest of Peter's sermon, and this is what every other early church Christian came, was baptized for that Paul was talking to in Romans. Baptism, they knew. Baptism is designed to be the beginning of a new life in Christ. Through baptism, you, are, you die to yourself, you are buried with Christ, you are raised to life with him. Your sins are forgiven. God officially adopts you as his child, and the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. You aren't just free from the consequences of the sins you have committed before. You are now free from the power of sin. And it's not the water. It's not the ceremony itself. It's this symbol that God has used over and over. It's just, how much do you trust me? How much are you willing to obey me even if it doesn't make sense to you? How much do you realize you actually need a moment here, some moment that I define as God and say, on this side, you're a slave. On this side, you're free. On this side, you're wandering around. On this side, you're in the promised land. On this side, you're not my child. On this side, you are. Are you willing to go through that? That's all it means. It's our faith in Christ. It's not baptism. Please don't ever misunderstand anything I've said this morning or anything that ever gets said here. We do not believe that getting you up here and dunking you punches your ticket to heaven. That's heresy. That's not how it's portrayed. And yet, guys, let me tell you, there is no other plan actually presented in Scripture. This is the plan of how the Bible tells us to lead people to Christ. And if you have not repented of your sins, you need to do that. And if you've never been baptized, this is your day. We have a whole team of awesome people that keep this stuff, that water is warm. <laughs> there, are, there are a bunch of outfits and dry towels Big buckets to throw the wet stuff in. You don't even need to plan ahead. You could do it this morning. And if you'd like to be part of us and be part of this quest to get more and more and more authentic in our faith every day, we invite you to come join the church this morning. If you need to repent, you were baptized a long time ago, but you need to come back to Jesus. You just need prayer. This is the moment where I'm asking you, please come forward. But I've been praying so hard this week. Man, I, if, if you've never been baptized, would you please come get baptized today? I don't know how to make this any clearer. That's what you need to do. Let's stand, let's sing.